The protagonist of Testimony, a 2021 novel by Peter and Sarah Lazar, is tired. He was active in the global justice movement of the 1990s and early 2000s, that network of activists who protested how international institutions like the World Trade Organization, the WTO, and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, were changing the rules of the global economy to benefit corporate profits at the expense of the planet's poor. Burnt out after years of struggle, the novel's protagonist, a young man named Sam, settles down to what he hopes will be a steady job with the Illinois Commerce Commission. But what he finds there is not so different from what he had been fighting. Government regulators are serving the interests of corporate energy utilities above those of consumers. And the more time he spends at his job, the more he realizes it's even worse than he thought. Welcome to Storytelling Animals. Today's guest is Sarah Lazar, who finished writing the novel Testimony after the passing of her father, who had written the first draft. We talk about how to make complicated, seemingly unsexy topics like corporate capture of energy utilities into a thrilling narrative, why energy utilities should be publicly owned, why leftists should maybe write more fiction, and how she used characters in the book to continue political conversations she had long held with her father. This is her first novel, and her primary career has been as a journalist. In fact, she is currently the web editor at In These Times magazine, where I used to work, and we worked together a couple years in Chicago. So we also talk about some of her recent journalism on the gross inequity and global access to vaccines and what's being done to fight it. It's a wide-ranging but really fun conversation, and I'm excited to share the episode. One last note before we start, uh, we are having our first monthly book club meeting for Patreon subscribers at the end of February to discuss The Great Derangement, Climate Change, and the Unthinkable by Amitav Ghosh. It's a great, thought-provoking, and relatively short book, so if you are interested in joining that conversation, uh, either at the book club meeting itself or just at our Goodreads discussion group, please check out Storytelling Animals on Patreon at patreon.com slash storytellingpod. All right, that's all. Uh, here's the interview. Hi, I'm here with uh, Sarah Lazar, co-author with Peter Lazar of the novel Testimony. Thanks, Sarah, for coming on Storytelling Animals. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um... So this book has, I think, an unusual and um, I would say a, a moving origin story. So tell us how you as a, a journalist ended up co-authoring a novel. Absolutely. Um, so my father, Peter Lazar, he passed away in November 2018 with, an, with a draft of a novel. Um, and Basically, what I did was the two years following his death, I went through the manuscript and edited it, added to it, changed it, but also kept a lot of it the same and really viewed it as a writing collaboration with my dad. And it was a process where I got a lot of support from my partner, Adam Johnson, who especially helped with a lot of the sort of plotting out of the story and storyboarding. Um, but it was really my dad who did the hardest part. Writing the first draft is always the hardest part. And then I had the chance to work on what he had completed before his death. And then the product is testimony. And it ended up being a lefty political noir thriller about uh, the regulating of power utilities. Yes. So I I love the idea of a a collaborative novel in that way. And 
tell tell us a little more about your your dad because a lot of his experiences inform the novel. Absolutely, his experiences definitely inform the novel. So my dad lived a very interesting life. He spent twenty years as a regulator for the Illinois Commerce Commission, which regulates utilities. Um, he also owned Grabajava, a coffee shop in Springfield, Illinois, and he did a lot of like cool art projects related to the coffee shop. Um, but before he became a regulator for the Illinois Commerce Commission, he had a very interesting radical history. Um, when he was a lot younger, he was involved in organizing against the Vietnam War, protesting it. He was really involved in labor organizing. And then in the late 70s and early 80s, he was part of the reindustrialization back to the factories socialist movement where socialist parties sent members into factories and said, go organize the working class to build a socialist movement. So my dad, you know, worked in railroads. He worked in garment factories in Chicago and he had about, you know, he spent quite a few years in the late 70s and early 80s doing that before getting really, really burnt out. I think that was a pretty mm-hmm. tough time in the socialist movement. And he ended up getting burnt out and deciding that he was going to stop doing that. But he always maintained a very radical critique of society, but really had a lot of questions about whether socialism was possible, uh, what a better society could look like. I think after that experience, with the Socialist Workers Party, that was the party that he was heavily involved in. After his experience, after getting really burnt out, he was just left with a ton of questions. I think some of his ideas changed, but some of them stayed the same. But he never really lost his Marxist critique of capitalism. So after that experience, he decided that he was going to get a job with a little bit more stability. And that's how, through a circuitous route, um, our family wound up in Springfield, Illinois, where my dad worked for the Illinois Commerce Commission. Um, But at the Illinois Commerce Commission, he was really taken aback at the culture of subservience to companies. So the commission is supposed to regulate companies, but instead it's subservient. Uh, There are a lot, there's a big revolving door. A lot of the people who work for the Commerce Commission end up going on to work for the industry. Uh Um, And my, my dad did try to be very ethical and stick up for for people in the state of Illinois and found that anytime he was at all tough on the company, he just got reprimanded. He got scolded. It's very interesting. You can actually go through old testimony that he wrote in the process of rape cases. And you can see notes that his boss made on his testimony and pen saying like, whoa, hold on there. You don't need to have that kind of tone towards the company. You're being too harsh. Um, And so yeah, so I think that um, the the project that my dad had worked on, it was actually, when I looked at it after his death, it was far more wide-ranging. It covered a lot more ground. It was about more than just the Illinois Commerce Commission. But when I was reading it, buried within it, there was this really interesting thriller about the Commerce Commission where he got to sort of air some of his critiques mm-hmm. and also just share this experience of finding him, himself in Springfield, Illinois, in this environment that was just worlds away politically from the, you know, idealism of his earlier years, and then trying to work out what it looks like to be an ethical person within those constraints. And yeah, so the, the, 
the book testimony, I think, reflects a lot of that experience. It reflects a lot of the um, discussions that we had politically as my dad navigated the Commerce Commission, but also just navigated living in the world after having an experience like the one he had with the Socialist Workers Party. And, you know, in some ways, the book is a love letter to uh, radicals who who travel a really hard path um, and who give a lot of themselves to try to make a better world and just a love letter uh-huh. to those who get burned out or don't know what the right way is, but keep trying and keep trying to do the right thing. Yeah, there's a lot in what you just said that I, I want to follow up on, um, but I'll start with a phrase you used, which is a thriller about the Commerce Commission, um, which doesn't necessarily sound like an institution that lends itself to a thriller. But so one of your characters um, says that the ability to explain complex concepts in clear terms is revolutionary. Um, And at the center of the novel is a fairly complex concept, which is regulatory capture um, of where basically corporations uh, control the actions of regulators. Um, You know, I've read articles about this. I'm sure I've edited articles about this, um, but I honestly don't know if I ever so viscerally sort of understood it or got so mad about it um, as I did as the process of regulatory capture is portrayed in the book. Um, so could you, I know you, you sort of just did, but if you could kind of define regulatory capture for us and then tell us sort of how you took something kind of complex and wonky and turned it into something fun and exciting. You know, you're totally right. When you think about thrilling, you don't necessarily think about regulating utilities, but part of Mm -hmm. the goal of the book was to take something that we don't often see as thrilling and actually show how the stakes are incredibly high and how it really lies at the intersection of a lot of what's wrong with our society and and sort of underscores the way our society needs to change. So um, regulatory capture is a huge problem in power utilities. Utility companies have a natural monopoly. For example, you're not going to have Uh, multiple pipes from different companies going into one home for things like gas and heat and stuff like that. Like Mm -hmm. there's a natural monopoly that happens. And a long time ago, the industry essentially figured out that that's a recipe for public control of utilities. So a way to ward against that is to actually encourage regulation, but then make sure that those regulators are totally in the pocket of those companies. So regulation is actually used to protect the profits of companies for providing utilities that really should just be publicly provided. And it's been really heartening because even though some may consider this an unthrilling area, uh, there's actually huge movement momentum around recognizing how important it is to have public ownership of utilities. There are a lot of campaigns all over the country. There's one here to put um, ComEd, the power utility that serves Chicago under public control. There are a lot of people who are sort of recognizing how important it is to have public control over something that's so vital to the public. Um, Because what happens is when regulators aren't strong and when companies have monopoly control, they can do really horrible things. They can overcharge 
Um, you know, there are people who have to choose between um, paying their heating bill and paying for medicines or buying groceries. Um, but then also there's this other level that I think further explains the newfound interest in this area, which is that there's a climate component because mm -hmm. one of the things that really needs to happen is that all of these utilities need to switch over to, uh, you know, away from coal, away from oil and gas and really switch over to forms of electricity and power that are not going to destroy our climate. And so I think getting utilities under public control is step one, but then step two is figuring out how to democratically build the will to um, make decisions that are going to do our part to curb the climate crisis. So our character, you know, the noir genre is interesting and part of why I was excited for it is that um, noirs often operate in worlds where power is murky and opaque and omnipresent and oppressive. And then a character has to find their way out of that. And I actually think that perfectly describes the power that utilities have yeah. to con over people's lives. And so part of the goal was to take something that's mysterious and that people might not see as high stakes and to actually unravel it and show how it works and show the human stakes. Mm -hmm. How much is, so there's a conspiracy in the novel that I won't spoil here, but that goes, you know, high up between how the utilities and regulators uh, help each other out at the expense of, of consumers. Um, I assume the, the details of the conspiracy are, are fictional, but how much of the sort of day-to-day -day light corruption is actually drawn from uh, your dad's experiences and frustrations at the commission? You're totally right. The big conspiracy is fictional. Um, you know, any resemblance to real people or anything like that is coincidental and is non-intentional. Um, mm -hmm. But there are some things that were factual. So one of the things that we did was we created a plot where the power of utility companies intersects with the buildup to the so-called war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. So the story takes place in 2002 and there is a big theme in the book of the buildup to the Iraq war. Um, mm -hmm. And so for that part, we did use actual language from speeches that George W. Bush gave, or we did include segments from actual news programs where they were demonizing IMF protesters and, you know, depicting uh -huh. terrorists or depicting protesters in a really unflattering, demonizing light. Um, but yeah, the actual conspiracy is true. Um, as far as the similarities with the day-to-day -day life of my dad working for the Commerce Commission, you know, I'll say that he did in some ways capture tone. Um, but he didn't, yeah. So, so I think that that's as far as it went. You know, there, there are uh -huh. description, there are descriptions of how lobbyists are very present. Lobbyists and industry people are very present in the life of the Commerce Commission, and I think that that dynamic of have of being this entity that's supposed to regulate companies, but then having such close relationships with those companies, I think the spirit and tone of that. Um, it's true. And then also uh -huh. there's a lot in the book about just my dad's experience 
in Springfield, Illinois. So my dad uh, is from Long Island. He grew up in a part of Connecticut that's really sort of a suburb of New York City. He's comes from a secular Jewish family. And then he found himself through this unconventional path that he traveled in Springfield, Illinois. It's just really different culturally. Uh, it's more conservative. And um, some of the book is him just working through being in an environment like that in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, uh-huh. And the, the main character has some traits that are similar to my dad's. Like my dad was very funny and sarcastic. Um, and could sometimes be a little snooty and turn up his <laughs> nose at people. And so uh-huh. the, but the, the book is hopefully the reader walks away feeling that the main character has learned something from that and has actually realized that the problem with places like Springfield is the people who run them, um, not, not the ordinary people. And that's, you know, some of the best people he's ever met are in that town. So he has his own little arc around that, but some of that with just his cultural observation from living in Springfield and feeling like a bit of an outsider. Yeah. I think the, a lot of the humor in the book, which it's, it's really funny, um, which was not, again, not something I necessarily was expecting going into a a thriller about utility regulation. Um, But a lot of that humor comes from both the sort of the, that rise of, of war on terror fear and, you know, people talking about, Oh my gosh, is Al Qaeda going to attack Springfield, Illinois energy utility. Um, and a lot of this kind of absurdism around that. And some of the other humor is that culture clash where, yeah, where, where the main character is, is kind of a big city activist coming to, or burnt out activist coming to Springfield. How do you manage the, um, or yeah, let me let me rephrase that to sort of how did you handle humor at, through the cooperative process? That's a really good question. My dad's draft was very funny. My dad was very funny in this way where his humor worked so well because he would shine light on a situation or provide Mm -hmm. insights that were just so sharp and so on point and do it in surprising ways um I my whole life I have thought my dad was just hilarious um so a lot of that was already there and then a lot of it was um you know I had to try to put myself in my dad's mental space to have a tone that was consistent And I just had to really try to learn how to Mm -hmm. do writing that's funny. Um, It was, it was something that I worked on a lot. And I also, I mean, honestly, um, my, one of the areas where my partner, Adam Johnson really helped me was um, telling me what worked and what didn't. So, so you show a joke and say, Hey, does this work? And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. So uh-huh. have, it's amazing having someone who can just like help you get rid of the bad stuff and include the good stuff. Um, and you know, they're like once in a while, Adam would also just punch up dialogue or something uh-huh. like that and add insert his own humor. Um, so his hand is in there too. And, you know, I think that unfortunately the aftermath of nine 11 in Springfield is an area where there's a ton of room for gallows humor because it was just such a jingoistic time 
it often feels like that era has been lost down the memory hole and we're now in this weird space where people get nostalgic about George W. Bush and talk about how he's this adorable grandpa who you want to get a beer with Mm -hmm. and he has found a love for painting and it feels like there's amnesia sometimes around this period where the jingoism was so intense there was so much just naked imperialism and racism and hyper nationalism everywhere you know some of the stuff in the book sounds totally made up but it wasn't like for example there was InfraGuard, which was an FBI program that was focused on partnering with private industry, places like oil and gas companies, focusing on protecting, quote unquote, critical infrastructure. Um, That's a real thing. It's like one of many, quote, private public partnerships with law enforcement. Um, There were all these efforts at the time to just ram through very right-wing privatizing efforts that had really already been in motion mm-hmm. before 9-11, but then people saw an opportunity to really jam them through. Um, there really were scares around things like if a helicopter or plane flies too close to a, um, a water plant, is it, you know, like, uh-huh. is it terrorists trying to poison the water? You know, there was actually, wow. I went through old newspaper articles and found a ton of scaremongering about how you know, terrorists were going to, like, take over the internet and create a big outage and poison water. And we had to have all of these things in place to protect against that, and including in, you know, towns it, like in central Illinois, where I don't really think that's the number one target on uh-huh. Al-Qaeda or, or whoever is being demonized at the moment, um, hit list. And so it's, so yeah, unfortunately, some of the humor just comes from like trying to like have some perspective on how bananas that time was. Uh huh. Yeah. So I think a lot of fiction with with left or activist characters, um, either they end up sort of as caricatures, uh, or even if they're written sympathetically, you can just sort of tell that the author maybe hasn't been to that many activist meetings or talked with that many actual socialists. Um, and is sort of imagining what they think like or what they care about. Or um, one, So one thing that's refreshing about this book is that you can tell that it's written by people who really know what it means like to be on the left, to have a lot of experience with in the activist and organizing world. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your the main character of the novel, Sam, and how, how you went about writing him and how he came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So... When my dad wrote the book, he actually didn't put a timestamp on it. So it could have happened in the 60s. It could have happened in the 80s. It could have happened now. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions that I had when working on the book was, what time period should this be in? And I went back and forth a lot. There was a part of me that thought that it should be right after my dad's period of organizing the late 70s and early 80s with the factory to the factory movement, and that this could have happened after mm-hmm. that. But then, But then I sort of thought about how formative the buildup to the Iraq war was to our current moment and how there was a real opportunity there to look at intersections between militarism and corporate power and corporate monopolies. And so Mm -hmm. uh, one area where I have experienced that my dad didn't is that I was a part of the global justice movement. I sort of caught the tail end. I was a little too young to be in Seattle in 99, but I went to a lot of WTO protests and 2003 you know I there was a period where 
all I did was just travel to different protests. So what what I decided mm-hmm. to do was set the main character as a sort of burnt out ex-radical coming out of the global justice movement, having had some pretty bad experiences with infiltration, with getting beat up by police, and he's trying to find his way, trying to find political meaning, but he's also totally broke and desperate, just economically destitute, and so ends up getting this job thinking, okay, I'm going to get a straight job, and I'm going to just take it easy for a while, but then gets thrown into this situation where he actually has to make fundamentally political choices. Um, So I took my dad's experience of just absolutely throwing himself into a movement, but I put it in the context of the global justice movement. But I, the, you know, the global justice movement was very anarchist influence, although there were radicals from all over the map, especially if you look internationally, there were a ton of socialists and communists all over the world who were involved but I decided to keep the character, you know, socialist, but like non-sectarian and really open to just uh, uh-huh. going where the movement is and being really excited about internationalism. One of the areas where uh, the where the main character also had a lot of overlap with my dad was after my dad decided that he was going to, um, you know, that he was going to no longer be involved with the Socialist Workers Party and that he was going to try to get a job that was a little more steady, he went through a period of being unemployed for a very long time. And he um, put out so many applications. Um, I actually, after he died, I was going through his things and I found an envelope of like 350 rejection letters um, from from oh, wow. all over the country and also from like Puerto Rico. He basically said that, you know, he was gonna try to be an economist on the regulation side and he just applied to everywhere that he possibly could. Um, and, you know, he he has talked to me about that period of being unemployed and how hard it was and how when, when, you're, when you're not able to bring in any money, you just sort of, like, lose any feeling of agency over your life. And it was really tough for him because he had kids mm-hmm. at that time, um, or at least he had me at that time. Um, and so so that experience of being unemployed is something that Sam goes through as well. And Sam is the main character. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not the primary focus of the novel, um, but you know when you're discussing energy utilities, global warming does come up. Um, and as you mentioned, today this issue is even more important because of of climate change. Um, so when you and I were at uh, in these times, we worked on a, a special themed issue of the magazine uh, that was all about climate change. And we decided to dedicate that issue to your dad. Um, And one of the things that you wrote about in the dedication is that when he thought our magazine wasn't writing enough about climate change, he'd call you up and say, you know, why isn't this the top story? Sometimes he'd email you to say, hey, there's no climate stories on the homepage today. Um, How did did that impact your, your, not only your work on the book, but just in general, your work? Thank you for remembering that. Um, and yeah, that, that issue dedicated to my dad was really special. It meant a lot that we could do that. Um, so my dad was very, very concerned about climate change. He thought it was totally bonkers that there was this great big existential, uh, crisis that we were hurtling towards, yet it was never really discussed in those terms by anyone. He felt even the left really failed to grapple with that. 
and he gave me a lot of crap because he didn't feel or when he felt like I wasn't covering it enough he would get he would complain uh-huh. you know so one thing to say about my dad is that my dad really taught me everything I know about journalistic writing he when I was a kid he like really taught me how to write he would edit my papers even like pretty far into my adulthood like I think till my late 20s I never really felt comfortable or maybe my mid to late 20s I didn't really feel comfortable publishing something unless my dad had seen it um Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I say he criticized me, I want to emphasize that he was like my teacher and the most instructive person in my life when it came to writing. But nonetheless, he uh-huh. it was just drive him absolutely bananas when when he felt like in these times wasn't covering it enough. So he would like text me and be like, hey, how come there's no story about climate change on your website and stuff like that? And so um Concern about climate change was a big theme in my dad's life. I think he, after leaving the Socialist Workers Party, was someone who was very curious and constantly questioning and was constantly trying to figure out, like, what is to be done and who are the people and who are the movements that are doing work around this. And I think you're doing work that that he felt like he could get behind and that was the right thing to do. Um, but he, it was something that he cared about a lot. And so we we included that a little bit. You know, we had... You know, it's funny because the book takes place in 2002, uh, and we definitely knew climate change was a huge problem at that time. In fact, the global justice movement that our main character, Sam, walked away from was, like, uh, on the cutting edge of demanding really dramatic action around global warming. Um, and so we we work in a little discussion of climate change into the book. Um, you know, there, there's a, a scene where Sam has, the main character has a discussion with his friend Greg, and Greg is just trying to understand, like, why public ownership is important and points out that there are some counties that have public ownership of utilities, but when they're conservative counting, counties, that doesn't do anything to address global warming. And then Sam's like, well, yeah, we have to build the political will to care about global warming. Public ownership is just one thing, but we have to, like, counter forces of conservatism. Um, so so we definitely mentioned that in the book, but my hope is that is that the book could be useful for people who are doing climate organizing around the issue of putting utilities under public control and that those movements today are very, very aware of the tie to climate change that that work has. So my hope is that the book can be useful to them. Cool. Yeah. So some of those conversations between Sam and Greg uh, are, are very interesting about sort of what the possibilities are moving forward but also what the you know some of greg's concerns about sam's approach where where sam is sort of criticizing um regulation regulators for being kind of in the pocket of corporations and greg is kind of like well do you just want to get rid of regulators like isn't that even worse um so i it's fun to sort of have these these conversations in in novel form and you mentioned earlier that you use this book also to sort of work through some ongoing arguments and discussions over politics that you and your dad had been having. Um, are there, are there other places where you sort of work through a political argument through the novel or are there places where you even change your mind while writing it or thought differently about something through writing it? Sure. One of the things that I really had to figure out during the course of working on the novel is what is the difference between a libertarian critique of regulatory capture and a Mm -hmm. socialist critique of regulatory capture. 
Because a libertarian might say, hey, yeah, we agree. These regulators are captured by the companies. That's why we shouldn't have regulators. That's why it's so much more pure to just have direct markets. So then a socialist is challenged to say, wait, no, no, no. I'm not saying that the answer is therefore free markets, you know, quote unquote free markets. But rather the fact that regulators the regulators are captured by the utilities shows how class interests function in our society and how everything bends towards the ruling class. And so the answer is not a more hands-off approach from government. The answer is actually more democratic public control of utilities. And, you know, maybe, maybe doing good faith regulation can be harm reduction given this current system, but really the only way to rectify the situation in this case is public ownership. So having to just learn the basic economics around that was a big learning curve for me. And part of how I did it, my dad actually wrote a really interesting article from many years ago, I think from the 90s, where he looked at how how companies that provide utilities originally had an interest in creating the regulatory structure that currently exists. So I think that 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 discussion of why we're not calling for libertarianism where we're criticizing uh-huh. the regulators so that we can have more democratic control was was a really big theme that was present throughout conversations between the characters Sam and Greg um so that was one thing um and then you know the other thing was just a little bit more philosophical for me which is um you know I think that it is really hard sometimes to find your way politically when everything is so messy, the world is so messy, the problems we're up against are so huge. I mean, talk about a huge problem. Climate change is just so overwhelming. It's already here. And then movements are messy. People fight. Things fall apart. Mm-hmm. You you get burnout. Sometimes you make sacrifices that are too much. It messes up your life. Um, I don't want to present myself as someone who's making the most sacrifices. That That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm just trying to say is that stuff is really hard and it can be hard to figure out like how to keep going. You know, what's the balance between like making sure you're okay and that you're getting to live your life, but also being a part of this bigger struggle. And those are mm-hmm. questions that our main character, Sam, really struggles with as well. And, you know, one of the conclusions that he comes to, he goes through this arc where he sort of is burnt out and wants to step back, but then is forced to do the right thing. And through that process, um, he, like, rediscovers this principle, which is, like, you know, you have to try because people are all we have. And our only choice is to try because what else is there? Um, And so that is, you know, that's a theme that, that may sound kind of pat, but I don't know what else you can really say to people who are struggling right now with what it means to keep going with trying to make the world a better place. You know, Miriam Kaba, a really great abolitionist writer and activist and educator has this thing she says, which is hope is a discipline. And I think that that's another way of Mm. saying that principle. Yeah, I think you know, Sam starts out pretty burnt out, not wanting to get back involved with activism. And and there are other characters who are sort of hesitant to step into it, given, you know, they have a, a kid to feed or 
or they even just themselves to feed. Um, and but there's also a lot of you know inspiring activism from from workers in the book and from community members who get involved in in the issue and you know some uh, journalists working to crack the case. And so you do come away, um, I think, with some energy ready to plug in. Yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, I think that we tried to subvert the genre of the noir a little bit because noirs are often the story of like one single crusader solitarily going up against a corrupt system and through their own intrepid uh, tenacity or whatever, they like take on the system and they beat it or they make some dent in it. And often the protagonist is like a detective or law enforcement or something like Mm -hmm. that. But so we tried to flip that on its head a little bit. And instead of Mm -hmm. being one single person going up a bit against a big bag system, it's actually just a bunch of um, okay, very flawed people who are going up against a big system. And it's through working together that they're able to be greater than the sum of their parts. And in this case, the you know the law enforcement is not the good guys crusading against the bad thing, but the law enforcement is actually part of the problem in the form of sort of how the FBI works with local police and stuff like that. Um, were you a big fiction reader or, or noir reader specifically before you started working on this? Yeah, so I I mean I love reading fiction. Uh, I read a lot of novels, but I can't say that mm-hmm. I was particularly. Um, learned or like exposed when it came to the noir or thriller genre but I did try to quickly learn a lot of things and read a lot of stuff yeah were there I guess was there any fiction that in particularly inspired you or was influential yeah so there are a few um leftist thriller and mystery writers who were very influential to me and also just helped me out a lot like they showed a lot of solidarity um Mm -hmm. so um there's this woman um Aya de Leon who writes a lot of really interesting stuff one I recently read her book or sorry when I was working on my book I read her book it's called A Spy in the Struggle and it's about the FBI infiltrating a black power environmental group um, okay. And her stuff is really cool. She does a great job of telling very accessible, compelling stories that very painlessly teach you a big political lesson and teach you how forms of oppression work. Um, there's another writer, Kate Raphael, who um, is someone that I know from when I lived out in San Francisco many years ago. She's a like longtime Palestine solidarity activist. And she wrote a Palestine mystery series, um, which is very good. Her writing is really oh, vivid and uh, suspenseful and economical. And she helped me a lot through my process. Like when I worked on the project, she was one of the first people I reached out to. And she kind of just like encouraged me and helped me think through some of my process. And um, she just showed me a ton of solidarity. Um and then Bill Fletcher, who is a longtime labor activist, um, he is also a novelist. He wrote a book called The Man Who Fell from the Sky, and he was very, very supportive as well, and his book is really great. And, you know, it was interesting talking to him because he has a really big 
political investment in leftists being fiction writers. He actually thinks mm -hmm. that if more leftists tried to do fiction writing, that um, it would make the left like healthier and more vibrant and that it's a really good tool for winning people over politically that's just not exercised enough. Mm. So he was super helpful, gave me a big old pep talk and also just like connected me with different resources and stuff like that. So that's awesome. Yeah, there are a lot of really great contemporary um, writers who I leaned on pretty heavily. Had you written much fiction before? No, this was a really new kind of writing for me. So I have been a journalist for like over a decade and most of my writing has been in that genre. Um, you know, like many years ago, I really enjoyed doing more poetry and creative essays and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But writing fiction hasn't been something I've really tried for a very long time. And so it was extremely intimidating um, to try to take on the project. But it was like one of those things where you just kind of put one foot in front of the other. And I would just give myself deadlines and say like, okay, by this date, I'm going to finish this chapter. And then I would, um, you know, before I started mm -hmm. on the project, I like sent some of my writing to a few people and was like, Hey, am I, is this any good? Like, should I continue on this project? And a few people, particularly Adam and my mom were like, yeah, you should do it. Um, this is worthwhile. This, you know, the stuff you're doing is worth you continuing to pursue. And so, but yeah, it was like way, way outside of my comfort zone. And it was honestly a very, like, very exciting process, but also really, really hard. I was uh -huh. pretty intimidated and thought I couldn't do it for big chunks of the process. Um, but also it was like really enjoyable to, to just get to sit with my dad's work and to like, work on something that was going to lead to him getting a book published. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I imagine that it is very different from writing journalism, even if some of the skills overlap. Um, and I could see how you're writing, especially you write a lot on militarism. I could see strains of that in the book, but also, um, yeah, it just seems like a totally different, a very different thing. It's fun, though. It's, it's fun. You know, it's fun yeah. to not have to worry about factual accuracy. Like <laughs> when, when, you, when you write an article, every single thing you say has to be verifiable. You have to mm -hmm. proceed very carefully. It really slows you down. But when you're just making things up, using reality as a starting point, but mm -hmm. not necessarily adhering to every factual detail to the letter, like, it frees you up. You can let your imagination run wild. You can, like, think about how something would feel or look like or smell. And it, it was actually really freeing and fun. I actually want to keep doing it, even though I don't know um, when a project that's special to me is going to come along again, uh -huh. but it's, it's pretty fun. You're making me want to write fiction. I used to write a lot of like short stories and stuff as a kid, but it's been a while. Um, before I, yeah. uh, before I let you go though, I, I do want to talk about your nonfiction as well. Um and you've been writing a lot for the last year or so um, about an issue which is super important, which is the grossly unequal access of vaccines worldwide. Um, and I know you just semi-recently had another article come out about that. Um, so what is what is the status of that issue now? Yeah, so looking at the issue of vaccine apartheid has been something I've been trying to focus on a lot. Um, it is just one of the greatest injustices 
injustices of our time is one of the greatest racial injustices of our time. You know, mm-hmm. like Nigeria is the second biggest country in Africa and it has just like a little over 2% of people fully vaccinated. Jeez. And then here in the U.S., we're around 62% and moving forward with boosters and just the, the level of disparity in terms of access is really, really horrible. And it's really not improving very much. Like, depending on who you talk to, somewhere between eight and 12% of poor countries are vaccinated. That's so much lower than wealthy countries. And we're really just not seeing a lot of progress on changing that. So there's been an effort at the World Trade Organization to um, uh, suspend patent rules to make it easier for countries to produce cheaper generic versions of vaccines. And that was... um, first proposed well over a year ago, and there's just been no progress. The, the Biden administration said in May that it supports the proposal. However, um, it has not materially done anything at the WTO to really aggressively move it forward. Okay. Um, there's also just a real failure to, um, you know, like actually deliver on vaccine pledges, let alone manufacture enough vaccines. Like, mm-hmm. why on earth isn't the Biden administration, like, compelling you know like why mm-hmm. why isn't the biden administration doing its own manufacturing of vaccines why are for-profit companies that are legally beholden only to their shareholders um the ones who are deciding how much vaccine is produced and who it's given to um so our global situation is just disastrous and you know part of why i've been so interested in covering it is because first of all this is a crisis that affects us now um and it's going to affect any future health issues that come up. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's not just the pandemic. It's like AIDS and HIV treatments. It's all sorts of things. But then also it just really feels like it's all a big dress rehearsal for the climate crisis mm-hmm. um, that's going to only get worse. Because if we can't cooperate internationally to solve this very real and shared threat, that's, that's only, you know, where, where any, if anyone anywhere is hurting from the pandemic, we're all going to be hurting because when the virus spreads uh, in a way that's totally uncontrolled, it leads to new and dangerous variants that then hurt the entire world. So this is a great injustice against the global South that has much less access to vaccines, but it's also going to hurt all of us. And to me, that's how, that's really similar to the climate crisis where, where the global South bears disproportionate brunt of the harms that are already here from climate change. But also no one is safe from it. You know, we're all being harmed. And so, so uh, yeah, I, in my head, there's a huge relationship between what's happening now with the pandemic and what is happening with the climate crisis. Right. Like if we, if we can't get vaccines to the rest of the world um, or allow them access to, to them, then, you know, are we going to help when when droughts hit or when natural disasters hit, or are we going to share technology of, you know, clean energy? Um, I think. Yeah. These are right. Sober right. Those other things, those other things are, are more complex. Like this, <clears throat> the vaccines are relatively straightforward. You know, the, the recipes are already there. You know, there are already facilities across Asia, Latin America, and South Africa that could start making mRNA vaccines now if the companies would only show them how. So the fact that that isn't even happening, even when wealthy countries claim that they want more vaccines to be available to the world, it's just mm-hmm. so astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to ask you to solve global 
vaccine apartheid or climate injustice um, in this interview, but I do wonder if there are um, any ways we can push against these trends or any movements you're inspired by that are doing so, or just kind of anything you would offer to people concerned about these issues? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many people doing amazing work on the vaccine apartheid front. Um, you know, there are huge efforts all over the world to rectify this issue. You know, there there are huge civil society labor movement pushes from all over, you know, from South Africa, from, from really around the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, here in the U.S., there are efforts to pressure the Biden administration to actually make good on its stated support for a patent waiver by supporting the proposal that was put forward by India and South Africa at the World Trade Organization. Um, there have been big protests and mobilizations around that. Um, there's also an effort to get the Biden administration to push the EU, particularly Germany, to stop obstructing the proposal. Um, you know, there were protests when Angela Merkel, the outgoing chancellor of Germany, came to the U.S calling on Biden to really press on this point. So there's a lot of activity. Mm -hmm. And then as far as the climate crisis, God, the, there are so many people doing amazing work, uh -huh. um, being really heroic. I don't even know where to start. I guess I should just say that there are, because the book testimony is about utilities and how ultimately makes the case for public control of utilities. I would just encourage people to learn about any campaigns that might be near them that are focusing on that issue. Um, great. Uh, is there anything else you want to add on any of these issues? No, just thanks so much for having me. It's really fun to talk about the book. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. And if anyone is, needs some inspiration to join any of those movements, um, testimony is a good place to start. I'll put a, a link, a link in the bio or a, a link in the bio, a link in the description. Um, and also maybe some information about, uh, the vaccine stuff too. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. That was Sarah Lazar, the co-author of Testimony. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to tell a friend, rate us, follow us, or none of those things. See you next time.